Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you so much for rejoining us. Now, our next guest is the editor of the Guion Journal, but he's also much more than that. And we'll talk about his new project and his new role as we speak to Teodros Fikri Mariam. And uh, formerly Teodros Fikri, there's a little story behind that. I, I, it would be great if you could tell us about that, Teodros. But sure. thank you. Welcome to the Sunday Wire, Teodros. Well, thank you for having me, Patrick. I appreciate uh, you having me, and I always enjoy talking to you on the show. Yeah, uh, as far as the name changes, <laughs> so when I first came to America, so originally I was at Teodros Fikramariam in Ethiopia, and then at the age of seven, uh, when I arrived in America as an immigrant, uh, to get away from the persecution and and the havoc that was going on in Ethiopia in, uh, in 82, uh, third grade, my, my first name got changed from Teodros to Theodore, and, uh, and then my last name got chopped from Fikramariam to just Fikray. So, uh, so now that I'm, you know, going back into the, 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 the roots of sorts and kind of rediscovering what I lost along the lines, I decided to revert back to Tildros and, uh, you know, in honor of my dad, instead of just saying Fikre, his name was actually Fikre Mariam. So I'm going back, uh, going back to that as well. So just coincidentally, uh, Tedros, who makes the decision to, uh, truncate, someone's uh, surname is this something that uh, they suggest to you when you immigrate or is it something yeah, I, don't that they... I don't know I, I wonder sometimes if my dad did that because he you know for us to, uh, to fit in a little easier as you know Tildros versus Theodore uh, Fikre, you know Fikre versus which is a little more uh, Western sounding than Fikre Mariam so I don't know uh, I really didn't they, these are questions I'm going to have to ask my mom I guess but I'm not okay. sure. I know it got changed, and it wasn't necessarily something I signed up for. But you know, a lot of times as kids, you uh, a lot of things happen that you don't sign up for. So <laughs> you had the whim of your parents, I guess. Okay. Well, it's an inter- it's, I think it's a fascinating story, and like like you said, uh, this is the sort of uh, the 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 map, as as it were, of your your own family uh, history and genealogy that traces yeah. all the way back to Ethiopia. We'll talk about Ethiopia in a few minutes. Sure. Uh, Tedros, but uh, we we recently uh, uh, had a chance to catch up uh, in the Capitol in Washington D.C. this week, and uh, I know you've been very active politically. Uh, obviously, people who read your writing at the Guion Journal over the years know you know how active you are politically. But um, so you've been active in in, in politics uh, for a number of years in a place that uh, it's a quite a vibrant political scene to say the least it I, I call it the right. Wall Street the Wall Street of politics this is uh, Washington DC where, where what is going on right now because uh, I feel a very different vibe uh, in the capital than past times that I've been there Tedros yeah. and and how what, are you picking up on this and and what what sort of yeah. transitions are happening right now so I, I call uh, DC the district of Cal- uh, Caligula <laughs> because this is the epicenter of uh, not the not the folks that live there, just the folks that fly in from other locations to work here within the political media, you know, media political complex. It's uh, let's, let's just say it's not the most uh, moral places in the world uh, in terms of grafting and political shenanigans. I, 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 I used to be very involved in politics in 2008. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, such an integral part of the Obama campaign that I was actually in invited to Chicago 
for, uh, for the launch of uh, Organizing for America uh, because of the work that I did for that election cycle. And, you know, and after that, I try to get Ethiopian, Ethiopian Americans to be a lot more engaged in politics, assuming that um, politicians actually care about us uh, and listen to our voices. And then what I found out the hard way, especially once I kind of went through a, a, a rough patch in my own life, is that, uh, you know, for the most part, they don't, politicians on either side of the aisle don't pay attention to us at all. And for the most part, a vote, a vote has become symbolic. And uh, the, the mother's milk of politics is money, and big money at that. So, you know, the, the whims of plutocrats, corporations, multinational corporations, the, their interests get paid attention to all the time. Uh, the things that we want, irrespective of what side of the aisle that you, you, you know, what, what side of the ideological divide you uh, reside at. Most Americans don't want any more wars. We keep having wars. Most Americans want a, a, an, a, an equal shake, a, a, fair, a fair opportunity in terms of uh, pursuing our, uh, you know, financial dreams. It's the opposite. Uh, there's wealth transfers, a transference from about 90, uh, 90% right into the pocket to the top 1%. So it's just, it's become a pyramid scheme, this country, and by extension, the globe. The world has become a pyramid scheme. Uh, and now we've fast-forwarded into an era where politics don't even make any sense anymore. You know, at least back then, I, maybe it was because I had blinders on. Things kind of made sense. You had one side of the aisle advocating certain things and the other side of the aisle advocating another. Now it's topsy-turvy. Um, and you have Democrats who, who chastise uh, Trump because he's not being hawkish enough on Iran, for example, <laughs> you know, or uh, or because or you have the New York Times. Always, they've always been peddlers of war anyway, anyways. But chastising him because he's reached not to uh, to North Korea. Now on the flip side, you have Trump who who, who pretends to be an anti globalist, but then he appoints Goldman Sachs up and down his administration, and uh, he he continues the same po- uh, quantitative easing policies and and you know transferring wealth to the 1% that Obama did before him and Bush did before Obama. So everything kind of just bleeds over. And it's kind of hard to make sense of politics these days, other than it's gotten completely off the rails. And both sides, both parties are completely, they're irresponsible and and they're acting in almost criminal manner in terms of their their negligence towards America and uh, Americans. Yes, yes. And uh, like right now, uh, the last time I was in D.C., it was just kind of, I think, right, right after, no, right before, actually, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Trump, Trump was elected. It was during the 2016 election cycle, and everything was kind of still up in the air. There was a sort of a feeling of, uh, it was uncertainty, but it was probably going to be Hillary Clinton. This was the sort of the, the general thought. You remember that uh, same same time frame in summer of 2016. A lot of crazy scandals going on with emails and WikiLeaks, Podesta emails, etc. And now, now Washington, now the, the the Beltway has settled into a new reality, and and it, it is a very strange feeling. Uh, the the activity is still buzzing around. There's a new election cycle being ramped up for 2020. Right. All focus is on the Democratic side of the ticket right now. Um, And how do you see this playing out? Do you do you think the lessons have been learned from 2016? Uh, Do you think that the the Democrats will come back strong after the defeat in 2016? How do you see how things are progressing? (laughs) Democrats don't learn anything. (laughs) There is no, for me, uh, what I've seen, what I 
uh, I've come to realize is that both parties are really the same thing. Um, and so what, what we get entertained to uh, is a kabuki, a kabuki dance. Uh, and, and Democrats haven't learned anything in terms of the weapon that they got in 2016. They're going right back into neoliberalism uh, supercharged. Uh, you know, at the top of the field, we have Joe Biden, who's a creepy guy, by the way. You know, I know the news is not paying attention to his, his, uh, his tendencies to just intrude on people's personal uh, spaces. That should be news. Not only was he doing that to grown women, he's doing that to little kids. And that should be news. And it's not. And they gloss over that. And so that's, you know, and he's, he's advocating the same neoliberal policies as Obama. And then you have Kamala Harris, who uh, made her, a name for herself by locking up uh, brown and black folks like it was going out of style and, and basically re- reconstituting penal slavery when she was the AG in uh, California. And the one time that she had told uh, somebody, uh, a, a, a banking criminal, accountable, uh, who, who happens to be the, the current Treasury Secretary, because he was repossessing homes pretty much uh, criminal, you know, against the law. Uh, at least, at the very least, he was shading the law, if not breaking laws, uh, as he was repossessing uh, the, the homes of Californians as the CEO of, uh, I think it was called West, West One Bank. Uh, when the time comes for her to, to discharge him, let alone prosecute him, she passed. And not only did she pass on prosecuting him, then she took money from him uh, when she ran for Senate. And now this, and then she pivots and, and you know, locks up poor folks uh, who, who have been forced. I, I'm not defending criminality of any nature. It doesn't matter whether you're poor or rich. But uh, the uneven treatment is just a stark reminder of, of what we've become as a nation. We're billionaires and millionaires, get away scot-free for committing some heinous criminal, uh, criminal acts including Epstein, and then the poor get locked up for longer uh, stretches of time for doing something that's a tenth, of what, uh, if not a hundredth, of what the rich are doing. So that's Kamala Harris. I call her chains, uh, chains as in, like, locks, chains they could believe. You know, and then the rest, to name Warren, I thought she was somebody, but she's just another, all the Democrats, for the most part. I, I can't think of one Democrat who's running for office right now, for the presidential uh, office anyways, who really stands for anything. They, they, they just lip service, uh, talking points, and Trump is the, uh, the, the big straw man that everyone, uh, you know, knocks. And they don't go after the, the, the root sources of the social inequalities. So uh, Trump has become the best friend of Democrats in that way. They, they get to escape accountability for their actions, uh, between 2008 to 2016, between 1992 to 2000, uh, you know, <laughs> Democrats have been just as responsible for the for the cratering of the middle class, for the widening of, of, of poverty in America. But they have Trump to point to, so I guess they don't have to be accountable for anything. Yeah, well, this is this is a point that you've uh, uh, articulated uh, in a lot of your writings over the last couple of years. In terms of candidates, I'll just the one uh, potentially transformative candidate, at least on the foreign policy side, uh, the Democratic ticket is Tulsi Gabbard. Um, she right. seems to be going against the grain, going against the establishment, at least in the campaign cycle. And so breaking with tradition, breaking with the, the bipartisan war party uh, in that sense. So she stands out in that way. But domestically, uh, she doesn't stand out very much uh, at all. Uh, I guess Bernie Sanders is kind of the vanguard, if you will, uh, for, say, social equality 
and uh, socialist policies uh, domestically. And so that's that's where the field's at right now. And right. Uh, what do you think, uh, Bernie's crowd is is dissipated from 2016? Mm-hmm. What do you think? By the way, let, let me let me touch on Chelsea. So there's something that she said the other day. I think two days ago. Actually, I saw it on Twitter, and I, I said made me do a double take, and then I, and gave her credit accordingly because she said that Julian Assange or the, no, uh, Edward Snowden was actually like she was being interviewed, and somebody called him a hero, and she agreed. And I was like, what? <laughs> like. I was shocked. <laughs> like telling the truth in, uh, in politics is such a rare occurrence that some, when somebody just whispers the truth, it becomes for me, it's like, what? This is a revelation almost. But yeah, in terms of domestic policy, I don't, like you said, there, there's nothing that I see what makes it stand out. But I, I, I give it credit for at least breaking with conventional wisdom when it comes to wars and, and foreign policy and, and burning. You know, I want to give him credit. In fact, in 2016, I almost fell for the dupe again <laughs> because after 2008 i said oh, no more i'm never gonna fall for another politician and then you know i said maybe and then he 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 said he's gonna fight for his his uh his his loyal supporters when the time came he <laughs> got on his knees quicker than you could, you could sneeze and kissed the ring of hillary uh and then not only did he do that he then turns around and, and throws his supporters under the bus by embracing the cockamamie Russia, Russiagate narrative. So for me, Bernie became irrelevant when he did that. But I don't care who the, the, the person is, to be honest with you. Uh, I think this is the problem that most Americans have of, of not seeing the, uh, the, the root causes of things. If the, the, the institution is corrupt, and I think most Americans will agree, Republican Inc., they're incorporated, by the way, they're corporations. Republicans and Democrats are both corporations. So any Democrat or Republican that says they're not taking corporate money, well, they're taking the money from, from the DNC, they're taking money from corporations. <laughs> so um, the, the corporations, the institutions themselves are corrupt. It doesn't matter who you put within those institutions. The institution will always, always, always be more powerful than the individual. Individuals are running to serve the institution. So why are we not focusing and inspecting and addressing the institutions, the Democrat, team Democrat and team Republican? Two uh, parties, factions that George Washington warned us about, by the way, not to, not, not to give our hands to factionalism. Two factions that are colluding in order to keep out everyone else from the ballot box. When you look at the presidential uh, uh, um, debates coming up, they're going to—they're excluding everyone but the only 23 people, and they all have to be Democrat. When, when the general general election comes, they're going to exclude anyone that's not that doesn't meet the five—I think five or ten percent threshold. So, in the media, effectively, uh, colludes with the, the 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 two parties, and if effectively, what that creates is it's uh, uh, false choices. Because if a true democracy is supposed to be anyone that has the best idea of wins. It's not that. It's anyone that serves the institutions, the, the Democrat or Republican institutions that, that has a shot of winning. This is not a democracy. It's just kleptocracy. And anyone that builds this as a democracy is lying. And people that accept that this is a democracy where two parties have a chokehold on power 
where money uh, uh, determines the winner, not votes, then it's by drinking the Kool-Aid that's being sold by the media uh, political complex. Yes. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's a big complaint. I think that's a big realization that's becoming more clear that uh, one of the biggest problems we have in uh, American politics is in fact uh, from the political parties themselves. These, they are, they are grown to such a degree, such a scale, such a size uh, that they, they, they just dominate and steamroll almost every aspect of uh, participatory democracy. So yeah, you're absolutely correct. I agree yeah. with you hundred, hundred percent on that. By the way, imagine if, uh, let's just say, I don't know, Thurgood Marshall, uh, was chosen by the KKK to be the president of the KKK just because the person at the top is going to serve the institution of the KKK. Do you think that's going to transform the KKK from a racist party into a quote unquote progressive party? No, the, the institution itself is what matters, not the window dressing at the top. And so, you know, we, we, we really have to wise up to these things and stop for, uh, following the cult, for the cult of personalities. These politicians are nothing but window dressing. The institution is deeper and wider and, and more, uh, has more reason than we, we, uh, that we're led to believe. And so we have to address the, 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 the root causes instead of just falling. Keep doing it every, every election cycle. Doesn't it get old? Like, they all keep coming around saying, hope and change, make America great. Nothing changes. And America keeps getting lessened. So at what point are we going to say, okay, well, let, let's, let's see what else is going on besides just these parts of personalities that we keep falling for. And I, I just want to, one last remark on, on U.S. politics, uh, Tedros. Okay. Uh, ben Rhodes, uh, I'm sure you know who Ben Rhodes is. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. He was the former chief advisor to uh, Barack Obama. And mm-hmm. uh, he's, he tweeted out uh, just last night, I think, uh, he basically made the, the comment about the divisiveness in the Democratic Party is the work of Russian trolls. Uh, so he was talking about the fallout from uh, AOC's uh, recent comments. Uh, right. There seems to be a weekly fallout of, of things that she says, but he's blaming this on the Russians. He says, right. no doubt, R- Russian trolls are waiting to to uh, capitalize and seize upon and accentuate the division. So it's like any schism in U.S. politics, they're still blaming it on, on these mythical Russian trolls. I thought right. that they're going to eventually drop this gag, but they're still running with this gag. What are you seeing on this? Well, I mean, I'm surprised they should have tried the Russian troll thing in 2008 when the economy got cratered. So instead of blaming, uh, blaming the bankers, rightfully. The bankers should have said the Russian trolls. You know, the Titanic was caused by Russian trolls. <laughs> like, this is the most uh, in, inane and insane, uh, you know, uh, talking point I've ever seen. And, and the fact, I guess it works on some people because there's a lot of people that just like to repeat and regurgitate without even, like, like inspecting and, and, and critically assessing things. But yeah, this is the, the favorite line of, of I want to call it, I don't know, neoliberals, but really it's the Democrat. I don't really, the whole, I, I see the party itself uh, for the virus that it is. Because the minute that you say neoliberal and then you, you cordon off the quote-unquote progressive wing, you're, 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 you're giving uh, quarter to the fact that somehow the Democrat party could be redeemed from within, and it cannot be because the whole party is just corrupt the same way that the Republicans are. So, uh, you know, it's, 
it's predictable. Uh, anytime there's any type of schism within the Democrat Party, they're going to blame Russians. Or they're going to blame somebody, anybody else except having to look in the mirror. Well, that, that we'll see how, how much longer, uh, how many, how much more they can squeeze out of this uh, this Russian thing. I don't think it's got much uh, of, of a life expectancy beyond right. the next 12 months, but we'll see. But uh, switching gears, uh, Teodros, we have a couple of minutes left. I'd like to, sure. I'd like you to talk about your new your new initiative, uh, which you've been working sure. on in the last couple of years, and to talk about the significance of Ethiopia, uh, not just sure. historically, but also in terms of uh, where Africa is at now and sure. what's happening in, in Ethiopia and the Suhel region potentially is going to transform not just African uh, geopolitics, but global geopolitics, actually. Um, so, you know, tell us a little bit about your, your, your latest project. So uh, for the past two years, I've been working and, you know, my, my wife and I started the Gion Journal uh, about two and a half years ago, about three months ago. Uh, somebody posted something on Facebook and she tagged uh, this, this somebody that was posing next to a relative of uh, Atia Todros, who happened to be the king of Ethiopia back in the mid-1800s. So I'm related to him as well. So she tagged me on it. And then the guy who was posing next to him was a pretty, like, you know, uh, involved guy in the Ethiopian community. And so we ended up tagging up. And at some point, he, was, he told me that, you know, he's been working on trying to restore the monarchy in Ethiopia to a, in a constitutional format. And so I had a, a running conversation with him for a while. And then I just had like a, 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 a light bulb moment that I've been trying as an individual for the past 10, 11 years to affect change. And <laughs> I've been hitting, uh, you know, I've got, I've managed to get a following of a couple of thousand people. And, and, and you know, there, there's a dedicated a group of uh, readers that we have. But really, for me, I'm not in this uh, to get followers or to, to become popular. I want it to actually affect change. And it feels like every year we're going the opposite way. It's the, uh, the, the, the status quo becomes more and more entrenched. So I kind of had like a mini revelation within myself, which is, you know, you can't, an individual can't take on institutions. So knowing that I was never going to be a Democrat or Republican or anything else of, of that sort. Um, I, actually, I, I started warming up the idea that, you know, what if the monarchy did back in Ethiopia within a, a constitutional format? The monarchy, by the way, was destroyed in 1974. Uh, and uh, Halas who was the last king of Ethiopia, was pretty much assassinated by, uh, after a coup d'etat. And for the past 44 years, Ethiopia has gone down the toilet. Uh, we've, uh, you know, first we had Mengistu, who uh, came in uh, and promised a new day uh, under the umbrella of Marxism, only for 500,000 Ethiopians to perish. Then after him, we had tribal uh, chieftains uh, called the TPLF. Uh, they were chosen, hand chosen by the British at the London Conference in 1991. Uh, and they came in and, and instituted ethnic apartheid. They call it ethnic federalism, but really it's ethnic uh, apartheid where they, they uh, created homelands. That sounds familiar. That's what the African uh, Africaner government in uh, South Africa used to call the, the homelands for various tribes in Africa. Um, and, uh, and basically shattered the country uh, along tribal lines or ethnic lines. And now we have the new guy. I thought I was having, I had a hope for him, uh, Abiy Ahmed. Uh, he, last year he came in promising hope and change. <laughs> 
almost brought for that one too. And now, you know, uh, the more aspect is economic policy. It's all about, you know, giving away the store to multinational corporations. And uh, two days ago, he announced he's going to uh, send 50,000 Ethiopians to the United Arab Emirates to work as basically low-skilled low workers. That's another way of saying uh, government-sanctioned uh, human trafficking. So we're going to give away Ethiopia to foreign national co- uh, corporations and turn Ethiopians into sweatshop uh, workers, basically. So um, that's when I was like, you know what? I don't, I don't think the quote-unquote tribal democracy, which is what we have in America, too, is not going to work. You're going you're gonna to have some, need something or some, an institution that's able to look beyond politics and, uh, and, and, and assess the long-term wellness of, of, of a society and to address the needs of the, the, the voiceless. And so politicians won't do that because all they care about is the next election cycle. And, and corporations won't do that because all they care about is profits, not people. So for me, it became a pretty, uh, once I'd made the, my mind up, I was like, you know what, I'm quitting journalism. And uh, when I was talking to the guy who, who formed the organization, it's called Ethiopian Constitutional Monarchy. He was like, you should become the chair, uh, given your background and, uh, you know, my, my relationship with uh, uh, as well as you know the fact that I'm, um, he was very impressed with what with, with my work and what I've been doing. So I became the chair of Ethiopians for Constitutional Monarchy. Uh, you could look us up online. It's uh, Ethiopians uh, number four cm dot org. That's Charliemary dot org, and uh, it's you know I know some people when you let's say monarchy. They automatically think about aristocracy and uh, no court, no good, you know, all these fancy titles. That's not what I'm about. What I'm about is, is everything I've done for the past two years and longer has always been about addressing the needs of the least amongst us. True nobility is not about wearing a crown. It's about serving people, especially the, the, uh, the underserved and the, the ones that are neglected by society. Uh, in fact, you know, I don't make it a point to talk about my faith too much. But for me, the King of Kings for me is, is Jesus because he served people instead of uh, lording over them. And so, you know, th- that's my role model. So I wish a politician, instead of, of all these politicians uh, reciting the Bible, they would actually do as he taught. Uh, but we don't have those, I guess. Uh, so anyways, for me, I've decided I don't know the, the feasibility of it, uh, but do things not because it's going to happen, but because you believe in it. And if you believe it and it, uh, you know, and work for it hard enough, it can't happen. So, you know, we're trying to restore the monarchy to check out uh, the work that we're doing. Well, our focus is it's on basically delivering uh, solutions and, and providing uh, services for people. Uh, so that's what we're doing at uh, Ethiopia's constitutional monarchy. And in the process, we're, we're advocating for economic policies that are aimed uh, and improving the lives of the marginalized, and uh, we call it the bottom 90%, as opposed to just addressing the needs and greed of uh, still a, a, a society that's doing very well. They don't need to do any better. They're doing. They, if they stop getting benefits for the next 100 years, they'll still be very nice, you know? Uh, and so it's time that we have to start paying attention to people that haven't left on the phone, and that happens to be the vast majority of humanity these days.
Yes, yes. And and by the way, uh, the, 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 the constitutional monarchy uh, form of government, this is, the, this is what the United Kingdom have in Great Britain, although the, the, the royal family is mediatized. In other words, they, they, they've relinquished their political power effectively, and they're just a symbolic uh, head of state. But the, the system itself is still drawn under a constitutional monarchy, and so there's effectively a constitutional crisis right now in Great Britain because the royal family has opted out of being involved in anything other than photo. Photo ops uh, and right. planting planting organic gardens uh, like Prince Charles loves to do and talk to his mm-hmm. talk to his plants and things like that. <laughs> but uh, shifting quickly to Ethiopia, and yeah. I, I just learned this, uh, Teo. Ethiopia is the only country in Africa that hasn't been ruled by a colonial power. It has remained right. independent for the for the for the lifespan of of this country is uh, this nation. Right. Is, is this is this is this true? It's true. Yeah, if I put a caveat on it, <laughs> so sure. we never colonized officially, right? Uh, the the reason I even put a caveat on it is because these days, and in the in the age of globalism that we live in, I can't think of one country that really has sovereignty anymore. So when you have a leader that's shipping off fifty thousand people to to basically be uh, you know human trafficking over to another country, uh, that 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 kind of tells you with the area that we live in. But yeah, uh, back in 1896, uh, I think it was, Italy tried to uh, invade Ethiopia to colonize us, and my, my forefathers were like, "Heck no!" And we we uh, you know faced off with them in the, at the Battle of Ottawa, and after the first time in the history of Africa, a country uh, Ethiopia defeated a colonial power. Mussolini tried again to avenge the loss of Ottawa uh, forty years later, and this time they, they played even more unfair and used uh, unleashed a chemical holocaust against Ethiopia. Of course, a million Ethiopians perished. And, uh, but yet still, we, we resisted for four years and ultimately drove them out. So yeah, Ethiopia has a long history. It's a, one of the oldest, if not the oldest nation, continuous uh, nation in the history of humanity. It's been around for the, the Solomonic and the Zagwe dynasties uh, were in charge for more than 3,000 years until it got aborted in 1974. And Ethiopia, as as a as a nation going back to the Axum Empire, is is older than five thousand years. So, you know, it's, it has a long history. Uh, as Ethiopia goes in a lot of a lot of ways, Africa goes too. And that's kind of why these um, these outside interests have have been uh, working overtime to to influence uh, the inner workings of Ethiopia to the point where, like I said, in '74, uh, uh, Marxists took over and completely. Demolished the, the the monarchy, and then in in ninety one, you have a group that was selected by globalists, you know, to rule with an iron fist, and now we have a, the new poster child of globalism, <clears throat> which is um, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, and he's doing the same thing as well. You know, when I put a little caveat on it, uh, I'm proud of the fact that we've never colonized, but we live in, a, in an age where it feels like the whole planet has been colonized. Yes, yeah, to put it in perspective, yeah, I, I see where you're coming from there. I mean, Ethiopia has played a, uh, we spoke about this uh, last week, and ha- has intervened and played a pivotal role in terms of international politics, African politics, but also internationally at the UN level, but on the African Union level as well. It's been a, it's, it has in the past been a very important, inter- made interventions politically that have helped situations that otherwise right. m- might not have been able to be been resolved. And I don't exactly. think it's it's lost some of that influence. It's lost some of that power. 
and is no longer that sort of that same state that used to do perform that role as, as an arbiter, arbiter. And so just your final thoughts on this region of Africa, why it's so important and why it's going to be pivotal in the coming years. So, so I mean, you have uh, the Horn of Africa for a lot of reasons, uh, as much as commerce that, go, uh, that goes throughout that area. Uh, the Horn of Africa is basically the entry point into Africa as a whole. And uh, though a lot of folks don't know that much about Africa, uh, the amount of resources uh, and wealth that sadly flow out of the continent, when you see uh, people in, uh, in dire straits, if even a tenth of that, uh, the resources were diverted to the people as opposed to being shipped overseas, you would not, you, you would not need, not, uh, countries in Africa would not need aid and IMF loans and World Bank loans and, uh, and see, you know, Chinese bank loans, you know, they can provide for themselves. Um, but that's the strategic importance of Africa. It is uh, uh, basically a treasure trove for, you know, for resources like oil, uh, diamond, uh, coffee, rubber. I mean, it's, it's endless. Uh, and the Horn of Africa plays a very important role in that. And so because of that, Ethiopia, in fact, even back in, uh, at the height of, of, uh, of, of the, the power of the Oxford Empire, uh, that was what, what they were known for. They were the, the commerce uh, area for, that, for the known world at that time. At, at the height of the Oxford Empire, they matched the might of almost any empire at that time. They might have been at the very top. But, you know, for me, again, I, can, I hate to kind of uh, draw on this, but, you know, the, the reason I'm, I advocate the, the return of the, the monarchy in Ethiopia is because back then we had uh, a central authority while at the same time having regional uh, control. Uh, and you had a central authority that was responsive to the needs of the people. I'm not saying that various injustices did not take place, but at least you had leadership that cared about the uh, the long-term uh, wellness of the country as a whole. That's not how it is. And since 1974, Ethiopia went from a respected nation, a nation, there's a picture of Queen uh, Elizabeth bowing to Haile Selassie. I'm not saying that that's something to be proud of, but I'm just saying that was the amount of respect that we used to have on the international stage. From that to basically like a punchline. And so this tribal politics for me, is is the root source one of the root sources of it? You know, when you when you um, vote and when you support people based on their tribe instead of their idea, and and when these politicians don't have any type of accountability to the people, then you, that's not a democracy. That's that's a funeral for uh, for nations. So I'm advocating for the return, and we have a group a group of us under the hope that we're going to have leadership that actually is. Uh, responsible for the people instead of abdicating its role. So that's what we're about. Again, you, you can check us out at Ethiopians, uh, Ethiopians with an S, number four, uh, CM, that's charliemary.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at Tildros, uh, uh And also you can check out the Gion Journal anytime. I'm still right there on there occasionally. It's uh, G-H-I-O-N journal.com. Yeah. yeah was a link, there's a, we'll have a link to some of those on the show page. And uh, cool. I encourage people to to check it out. Of course, we'll be talking to you hopefully again, uh, Teodros. Yeah, and uh, we look forward to to seeing what you're you're going to be doing on this project, but also uh, on your writings along the way. You're an important pundit, an important person uh, in the conversation uh, politically uh, in the United States. 
Uh, so do check out uh, Teo Joe's work. But thank you very much for joining us on the Sunday Wire this week, Teo. Thank you, Patrick. I appreciate you. Talk to you soon. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Teodros Fikri Mariam. He is the editor of the Gion Journal, uh, but also Ethiopians for a Constitutional Monarchy, a new initiative. Uh, we'll have a link to their website so you can see what they're saying and what they're doing uh, on the show page as well. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to connect with the documentary filmmaker from Holland, Max van der Weef, uh, on the other side, and we're going to talk about MH17, five years on, what have they discovered? Well, we have some new evidence, uh, which we're going to hopefully speak about and unveil after this commercial break with ACR. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. Stay right there. You're a child, you're born in the state of mind. Innocent of all the evils of the humankind. You live, you learn, you start to grow. Full of all the teachers that we are so called to. 